With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. It's all over. It's all over for another year. The World Championship has entertained us royally. And we say, of course, congratulations to Ronnie O'Sullivan for equaling Stephen Hendry's modern day record of seven world titles. Uh, this is not news to anyone listening. I'm sure everyone, this is not breaking news. You know he's done it. I was there. It was an incredible occasion. Um, firstly, he played so well the whole fortnight and thoroughly deserved to win. But um, what was interesting, I think, and most significant, apart from the historical context, is what it clearly meant to him, breaking down. just shows you, it wasn't 17 days in the making, that's essentially 30 years in the making, ever since he turned professional. You know, he came on the scene, he won the UK Championship at 17. A lot of people thought he would be the youngest ever world champion. He would be world champion before 21, break Henry's record. He didn't do that, but he's now the oldest champion in any era. World Championship's been going 95 years, and Ronnie O'Sullivan... He's the oldest world champion we've ever seen. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And it's not some fluke or some chance thing. He's world number one. He's the best player in the game. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, incredible. Um, to see him break down like that was uh, quite touching, actually, I think, because it meant so much to everyone else. It's it's nice that it meant a lot to him as well. And But here's the thing, and, and you know, it, it did feel like a historic moment, but I was talking to Michael McMullen. You may remember him. He used to be on this podcast. Um, and we were saying, 
he was saying that, you know, obviously it is a historic moment, but actually if he wins it next year, this will not be forgotten, but it won't feel as big because obviously he will then have broken the record, which will be even bigger. In the same way that no one really talks about the 1996 World Championship, where Stephen Hendry equaled Steve Davis and Ray Reardon's record, they remember 99 because that's when he broke it. Um, so, you know, we'll see if Ronnie wins it next year or in the future um, and breaks the record. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And that will be even bigger. And then it's a question of how many can he win. I know Jimmy White thinks he can win 10. I mean, listen, they're difficult to win. He could go there next year, lose on the first day. We just don't know. But that's all to come. That's all for the future. For now, we celebrate him. We celebrate the tournament. Um, they had huge figures on the BBC, nearly 5 million tuning in for the final session. Um, you know, BBC Two, that is a, a massive figure for them. It dwarfs anything else that they'll be showing on that channel. Um, and that would have been a, a great figure on any other channel. It beat EastEnders Coronation Street, the two big soaps in, in the UK. Uh, Britain uh, still has a great affection for snooker. Ronnie O'Sullivan and and uh, the moment, the historic moment, obviously, I think they drew in maybe people who maybe wouldn't normally have been watching. There's no doubt Ronnie does that and, and the historic significance did that. But even so, it's still great figures. Eurosport had really good figures the whole fortnight. They didn't fall away when it was live on the BBC in the evenings as well. So everyone was happy. All the broadcasters were happy. That's what we like. And I just thought it was a terrific event. It's a long event. I mean, obviously on Eurosport, we started with the qualifiers. But also, really, I was saying to someone before I left Sheffield that it feels like from the Masters onwards, you're in sort of countdown mode to the World Championship. People keep talking about the Crucible, talking about it. Tournaments follow one after another. There were a lot of very tired people <laughs> in Sheffield on the last weekend. Um... Looking forward to going home, I think, which is fine, you know, because it's long hours, really long hours. And, of course, a lot of fans are putting the hours as well, um, following it from home or from the Crucible itself. So, anyway, the bottom line is, well done, Ronnie O'Sullivan. Terrific performance and achievement, and I thought it rounded off a great event. We were sort of discussing a few of us, OK, what would you mark the tournament out of 10? It's very difficult to sort of to say, okay, well, how does this differ from others? Because they're always good. I think you do remember the finals, and the final on day one looked like it would be a washout, let's be honest, 12-5. Session to spare was being talked about. I never quite felt that would happen, though. You always sort of sense that it might tighten up a little bit, a little bit like a, a sort of general election race. You know, you look at the polls, but when when it actually happens, things tighten up. Uh, I'm not I'm not Professor John Curtis, but that's just my, uh, that's just my observation. Um... And indeed, Judd Trump played a great session on the Monday afternoon. But here's the thing, and it's you only get this in this tournament, which is why we love it. It's the session snooker, long matches. 14-11 is a great lead. It's just not such a great lead when you've been 12-5. But 14-11, you're still a heavy favourite to win. And what was very impressive, maybe the most impressive thing about the whole tournament, actually, for, from, from O'Sullivan's perspective, as far as I'm concerned, is he treated that like another match entirely. It was a new new match. Forget everything's gone on before... There's the winning line, and I'm going to sprint for it. And he came out, played a very, very good final session to remove all doubt. He won it, what, 4-2. So he won the final session. I think the only session lost in the tournament was that, that Monday afternoon. Um, I also want to credit Judd Trump for his 
very gracious reaction. I mean, he didn't play necessarily his best snooker in the tournament, but my word, he, he, that shows you how good he is. The fact he can get to the final and still, on the last night, leave the result in some doubt. Um, but not just how he played, how he behaved, the way he spoke about Ronnie, and what obviously most people won't have seen was afterwards at the reception, he was there basically all night enjoying himself, posing for selfies, posing for pictures, doing all the right things. I think he had sort of very temporarily fallen out of love with Snooker Ebony after the Tour Championship. He was saying he wasn't looking forward to the World Championship, he should leave the Crucible, all, all that sort of stuff. But I think he fell back in love with it, getting to the final, experiencing those scenes. You know, they'll think there'll be things he'll remember for a long time. Okay, he didn't win the final, but to be part of that was very special, I think, for him. So I think we should absolutely pay tribute to Judd Trump as well. Um, good to see him smiling again and enjoying his snooker. So, well, that's it, really. That's the, the, world, cha- <laughs> the world Championship is over. Um, but, of course, we have a lot of reflections from various people. Let's go to Callum Law, who likes to uh, look back on these events, and let's let's hear what he has to say. Well, not, well we're not going to hear it. I'm going to read it. <laughs> um, he said, uh, it's a funny old game. Every year, regardless of what happens, I can't help but think, what a great tournament. Beforehand, it was the most open championship ever, the pundits said. But Ronnie O'Sullivan winning and the four semi-finalists being the class of 92 and Judd Trump surely shows that over the longer format, the cream always rises to the top. My personal highlights in the tournament were the way Mark Williams played throughout. Win or lose, he's always an absolute joy to watch and I'd argue he's the most entertaining player in the game. Neil Robertson's 147 was also superb and as a great student of the game, you could see how much it meant to him. It was also good to see Jack Nazowski and Steve Maguire performing well. It was nice to see John Higgins reach the semi-finals when he didn't produce his best for any sustained length of time in the tournament. John's B game is clearly still in good working order, but once he got to the semi-final, that wasn't going to be enough. I was still left thinking, what if, had he potted the black off the spot to make it 9-7 overnight? It may have been a lot tighter on the last day, but he didn't, and O'Sullivan produced that magnificent clearance. I think at some point during their careers, all snooker fans wanted to see an O'Sullivan-Trump world final. Unfortunately, it wasn't quite the thriller I'd hoped for, but that's credit to Ronnie, because all tournament he played clinical snooker, other than the first session and a half against Higgins, he never really appeared under pressure. Trump put up a valiant effort on the second day, but he could never quite get within striking distance. While I greatly admire Sullivan's ability, I wouldn't say I find him particularly likeable with some of his behaviour, such as the gesture in the first round and arguing the referee in the final. If other players did the same, I suspect they'd be criticised a bit more. But one thing that's definitely not up for debate is that he's a genius and the best draw in the game. Lastly, there's been so much talk about the venue over recent months, and to me, recency bias seems to be a big part of it. After the Masters, when it's fresh in their minds, players say things like, the Alexandra Palace is the best venue, etc. But come Crucible time, players start saying things like, there's nowhere like this place. To me, the Crucible remains the home of snooker, and long may the World Championship stay there. Anyway, thanks for that. Those are my ramblings. What a great World Championship, what a great season, and thanks again for all the great podcasts. Well, thank you for you uh, to you, Callum, for taking the time to write that. Just a couple of points. I think what you say about Higgins is very true. The fact that he got to the semis. John Higgins, he's always been the same, really. He's the best player I've ever seen at doing nothing in a frame and then turning it round to win it. And in doing so, turning round a match. So you can look at him sometimes, you think he's just not there today, he's not playing well. Something will happen, a chance will come and he'll take it. And that's why he'll be absolutely gutted, as you say. That 16th frame... One of the biggest frames of the whole tournament, that was. Because he had a, a simple black. He seemed to play it a bit too hard. He didn't make sure of it. Um, and that was 9-7 Ronnie overnight. The match is in the balance then. I still think Ronnie would have won personally. But anyway, it was in the balance. But 10-6, massive blow. And he never really recovered from it. Um, but to get to the semis, you know, not not at the top of his game. You know, every credit to him. 
Absolutely, Mark Williams. He was, uh, you know, one of the stars of the tournament. A bit unlucky, really, not to reach the final. Made the great comeback against Trump. Still playing a very entertaining brand of snooker. And, you know, thrilling audiences. I mean, he made 10 centuries in the first two rounds. He made 16 in the tournament. That's equaling Stephen Hendry's crucible record from 2002. And that's someone who didn't get to the final. So he made 16 centuries in four matches. That's incredible, really. And it, Mark was never really known for centuries. In his early career, he couldn't bother to make them. You know, you get to 80 and, you know, let's get on with the next frame. But that, that's obviously changed. Um, O'Sullivan and the referees, obviously, there was a lot of talk about... Um, the final with Olivia Martil. But it sort of starts before that. I think if I was a referee, I would not want to, I would not want to referee Ronnie O'Sullivan because he seems to, well, not get on with them really. Um, whether it's an anti-authority thing, I don't know. I, my personal view is it's not so much that. It's just that he plays at a very specific pace and he wants the referees to keep up with him. And he's always consciously sort of thinking, are they in the right place? Are they getting the balls back on time? Et cetera, et cetera. Now, we're blessed with excellent referees. You know, all the refs who were there are the best in the business. Um, he must be hard, though, to referee because there's always more focus on his matches. There's always more people watching them. Um, now, the sp specific incident in the final, I personally feel... I was in the arena commentating. I didn't see anything. And I personally feel that maybe the referee on this occasion was mistaken. Um, now... He was in there, he may say the opposite. But one point Ronnie O'Sullivan made, which I absolutely, absolutely agree with, is you've got all these cameras. There's loads of cameras trained on him, on the action. Surely if he'd made an obscene gesture, one of them would have picked it up and we would have seen it by now from the final. We didn't. However, of course, earlier in the tournament, he did make an obscene gesture. He wasn't warned in that match, um, although he's subsequently, I think, liable for disciplinary. It may be that the referees have been told, you know, keep an eye out for it. It may have been just a simple mistake. It was an unfortunate incident, unsavoury. I don't think O'Sullivan emerged with great credit from it either. But I think actually it's a little bit like Boy Who Cried Wolf. On this occasion, I think he probably was the innocent party. Um, anyway, it, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't in any way detract from what then happened in going on to win the tournament. It was a talking point. It was controversy. Um, Olivia Martil has got real life stuff to deal with. He's a nurse. He worked on the front line of the battle against COVID in Belgium. He's seen real life or death stuff. So this, I'm sure, wasn't an enjoyable thing to happen to him, but he's actually seen far more important things go on in his life than uh, an argument with a snooker player. I do, I am told that O'Sullivan did apologise to him, um, before the second session of the final. Not, he didn't admit any guilt, but just said, you know, I didn't, I don't want to, don't want to carry that into the next session, all of that negativity. And I think they were, they were fine after that. Um, anyway, uh, let's move on to, Alpha Bonzi, another regular correspondent. Hello, Dave, and all of the correspondents. My three questions after an awesome 17 days are. Number one, Ronnie O'Sullivan. I'll answer these one at a time, Alpha. Uh, number one, Ronnie O'Sullivan, Britain's greatest sportsman as well as history's greatest ever snooker player. Um, it's hard to compare sports. Snooker is a different beast to a lot of sports because it's not physical. So at the age of 46, you can be world number one. You couldn't be in, you know, tennis, for example, I guess, or, you know... Um, sprinting or whatever um so it's difficult to compare but if you look at what he's done in his sport compared to what uh, other sportsmen not just british but um around the world have done he, he's in elite company for me and i don't i don't really see the arguments against that number two how much longer can the class of 92 go on at the top level if they really genuinely don't care as they keep telling us well of course they do care is the point um alpha i mean higgins has never pretended he doesn't 
Mark Williams, he cares when he's playing. He's very, very good at taking defeat well. Very, very good. And that's not put on. That's a genuine thing. But when he's out there, he wants to win for sure. He wouldn't be there otherwise, you know. And Ronnie, well, we saw the, the way he reacted to winning a seventh world title. It, it meant everything to him, actually. So, yeah, they're, they're just great players and their competitiveness. They hide it well, I think. Um, and maybe they hide it even to themselves. But they want to win. And they do win, still, amazingly, 30 years on. And number three, were the fire in Brussels serious when they suggested O'Sullivan should retire? The thoughts would keep Eddie Hearn and Steve Dawson awake at night. A final rhetorical question, how can anybody suggest leaving the Crucible now? I sincerely hope the podcast continues in some form. It's given us a lot of great pleasure. Thank you, Alpha. Well, there'll be news on that later. Oh, there's a, there's a tease. There's a tease. Um, but uh, on the point about... I mean, Hussain Vafai got very carried away, didn't he? And, and, you know, I think I covered this at the time, but... That was just a strange outburst that kind of just feels even more surreal. I think a few weeks on, Luca Brussel seemed to partly back him up, but uh, I don't know. I don't know what, what they were thinking, really. You know, I mean, we've just seen, <laughs> I've explained about the viewing figures and the, the excitement. Ronnie O'Sullivan's picture was on the front page of three national newspapers on Tuesday, right? Now that is, and not for, not for some scandal, for winning the World Championship. That's pretty unheard of. We know of the snooker player unless somehow Jimmy White won it or something after all these years, there'd be no other snooker player on the front page for winning the World Championship. That's just a fact. So that tells you his value to the sport, um, regardless of any uh, feelings some people have about his personality or behaviour. The fact is, he is probably the sport's prime asset outside of the game itself. The prime asset is Ronnie O'Sullivan. Um, so the idea that he should retire for the good of the game is frankly laughable. Laughable. Um, let's move on. Uh, uh, Mike Shinks. Now I'm going to edit this slightly, Mike, because you do swear. But that's you know that's up to you. But we have a you know we have people listening in, in cars with with much put upon children. So uh, anyway, uh, is it me or has there been a need for more than the usual number of requests from the referees to ask the audience to be quiet or stop moving? We're often told the Crucible audience are the most respectful, knowledgeable in snooker, but it seems to me that in this tournament they are incapable of understanding the two basic requirements: sit still. And shut the melon up. Now, I put melon in there. That wasn't the word he used. I've substituted the word melon for the word Mike used. But thank you to Mike Shinks for that. I'll say this, Mike. The audience now at the Crucible, and I was there for the one, whole of the one table um, set up, they're no better or worse than they used to be. Nothing's changed. The only thing that's, well, the only thing that's changed is obviously now we have phones. And that is really annoying when they go off. And they've told so many times, um, put them on silent. You know, it seems... These days, it's a human right not to turn your phone off. You know, oh, we can't turn it off, you know, but you can put it on silent. That's an easy thing to do. And it's really unforgivable to have phones going off, you know, when, when there's been so many warnings. Um, but in terms of moving, I mean, O'Sullivan got a bit fractious um, at times saying people were moving. But, you know, they, they, they can't sit like statues. They're not, they're not trying to put him off. They might just have scratched their nose at the wrong time or something. But that, it, it's a question of whether you notice it or not. And most players don't, actually. And Ronnie O'Sullivan for years would go there and not notice it. But he was so highly tuned in to the job in hand, which was winning this tournament. He was so focused on that that he, you know, he had that intensity. And part of that was noticing things going on. I thought the, thought the audience were perfectly well behaved. You always get the odd person who's maybe had too many drinks, or whatever. But basically, there were no big problems. And, and you know, everybody was very respectful. So I, I didn't see it as an issue. Um, but of course, it's... It becomes an issue when you get the most prominent player in the game sort of asking referees to all... I mean, he asked Marcel to make a speech at one point to tell everybody, you know, to stop moving. Um, 
I didn't I didn't see it as a big problem personally, but obviously I'm not down there playing, so that's uh, you know that, 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 that there is that to say. Tim Forty writes, I do find it a little titillating that Trump, who's known to dislike World Snooker Tour promoting the golden years of the game, is in the World Championship semi-finals with the class of '92 in the other semi-final spots. By the time you read this, the class of '92 v Trump will probably have been settled. Well, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit like blockbusters used to be, where that you'd have one team, uh, you know, with, with one person on it and another team with two. I mean, he was up against three formidable players. He beat one of them, Mark Williams. He lost to the other. Um, Judd Trump is, is from a different generation. Um, he has his own views about the direction snooker should go in. But he's highly respectful of those three. I mean, Ronnie O'Sullivan was his idol growing up. And as I say, you know, he spoke incredibly well about them. So, I, 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 I listen... I know there's a kind of, there's this sort of O'Sullivan v Trump sort of fan split, but you saw what they think of each other. I mean, that hug, it may still be going on in, the, in another universe. They clearly have huge affection for each other, and I don't see why, you know, everyone else can't just sort of get over that, really, and respect it. Uh, now then, let's go on to Kerry Richards. Is there any way of knowing how many steps a player might take during a match, especially the Crucible in its longer format? Neil Robertson comes to mind as a player who's very busy around the table, checking and rechecking next shots, angles, etc. Just got me thinking how that translated into the number of steps taken over the course of a typical match. Despite snooker not being the most active of sports, some players could still notch up a useful number of daily steps purely by playing a long match. Yours in niche, Kerry. Well, Kerry, I, I think I'm right in saying uh, Terry Griffiths, when he won the World Championship in 1979, he, he lost something like two stone. Um, now his matches were quite long, so he, he did a lot of walking around the table. But yeah, I mean, well, you could have a pedometer put put on someone. I mean, that that that, that could be a thing. Maybe be interesting experiment to find out. Um, yeah, you do a lot of sitting down as well. It's got to be said. <laughs> so more, sometimes more than you would like if if your opponent's playing well. But um, yeah, Neil Robertson, of course, he he sort of walks into the shot. This is his whole thing with the crucible. He reckons he's not big enough. Um, but anyway, he seemed to find it big enough <laughs> when he made his maximum. Um, Benjamin Rigby. It occurred to me, how do they decide which table to keep when moving from a two to one table setup at the Crucible? Any insight would be much appreciated. Well, Benjamin, uh, Dominic Dale was telling me about this and he said, we have to trust Dominic, he's right. He said, essentially, they would, players can give feedback on playing conditions, which they do. They have a match sheet and they can write whatever they want on it and sometimes it's quite blunt and other times it's constructive and so World Snooker will look at the feedback from the players about which table they feel is playing better and obviously they'll have their own views on that having watched the matches and then they will make a decision with the table fitters which table will be used but essentially you know that it's a new table really there's new cushions there's new cloth the slate okay is the same but it's essentially it plays like a new table so it doesn't really doesn't really matter. I, I have often wondered whether players can ask which one it is, because obviously when you get to the semis, or certainly, sorry, when you get to the final, I should say, um, one of the players will have played on one table during the two-table setup, and one will have played on the other. So does that matter to players? I suspect not. I suspect not. Uh, let's, uh, let's move on. Uh, Matt Tarrant. Now, he's, he sent two in a row here, which obviously is a bit out of date, but I'll do my best to uh, to catch up with it. So I attended the quarterfinals and watched Judd win five frames in pretty short order to progress to the semis before the screen came up for the last three frames of Higgins-Lazowski. Late night crucible drama and a deciding frame. Just brilliant. As I typed, Judd's 3-0 up and leading in the fourth against Mark Williams in the semi-final. Having won the last eight frames of his quarterfinal, this means Judd 
has won 11 consecutive Crucible frames and looking good for a 12th. Some achievement. Do any of my fellow listeners or even your good self know what the record for consecutive Crucible frame wins is, either in one match or across multiple matches? He says now, uh, this is obviously writing this at the time, he said, Williams now looks favourite for the fourth frame. Sorry, Judd, it's obviously my fault for writing the email. Well, I believe the record <coughs> for a single Crucible is 13, uh, which was Mark Williams, ironically. Um, that's over two matches. But Stephen Hendry over two championships... In 1992, he won the last 10 frames against Jimmy White. And then in the first round in 93, won the first nine frames. So that's 19 frames. But that's over two championships, whether you, whether you count that or not. And then Matt continued. He said, uh, he said, well, same frame, another question. Williams did win, bringing to an end Judd's 11-frame winning streak. There was clearly some bad feeling at the end of the frame. Judd conceded by moving balls when it was Mark's turn to play. I understand this is not the done thing. And Mark was clearly furious and played a couple of practice shots while Tatiana Wollaston was attempting to start re-racking the balls. My view, don't get the Welshman angry. And I expect Mark to go on a run. Well, that actually happened, of course, didn't it? Because he, he went, took it to a decider. Uh, he said, isn't it a rule? He said, it isn't a rule, but it's an expectation. Ronnie started the trend a couple of years back. I've noticed others do it, these championships. Well, I would have thought that logic dictates you can only concede when at the table. Judd was at the table but not happy with the shot he played, so conceded when it was Mark's shots. I agree with Mark. Judd could have conceded by remaining in his chair before playing a shot, but not after. I have to say, Matt, you've got that wrong. Basically, Mark wasn't concerned about Trump. He was worried about the table. He was The reason he was playing shots was because he thought the table was rolling off. So he was playing slow rolls to illustrate to the referee, look, this is rolling off. And the table fitters came out of the interval and sort of tried to do something. I mean, they were literally sort of, you know, it was literally kind of almost beer mats under the ta- table leg stuff. You know, they were trying to just adjust it slightly. So he had nothing against Trump. The, the players have been told they can actually concede. Um, you know, they are allowed to concede like that now. It's not that, it's still not kind of not the done thing to the strict, strict etiquette, but there's, like you say, there's no actual rules uh, against it. So uh, I, there was no bad blood between the two of them, I can assure you. We're going to go back to talk about Mark Williams now because Stephen Forbes from Bonnie Scotland has written. He said, I'm thoroughly enjoying the coverage and commentary of the 2022 World Snooker Championship thus far from your good self and the Eurosport team. Thank you, Stephen. I should say this was, this was sent about five days into the championship. Uh, at the time of writing, I was fortunate enough to be laid low with COVID on the day Mark Williams won his first session against his compatriot Jackson Page by seven frames to one, playing some of the best snooker ever seen. Neil Folds posed the question as to whether it was the best ever played at the Crucible or indeed anywhere for that matter. Williams was scoring so heavily and taking one chance to get in. I'm not sure the 7-1 scoreline would have been very different regardless of Mark's opponent. Recency bias aside, where did the seven-frame burst from Mark Williams rank for you? Recent memory would have to mention the John Higgins performance at the 2021 Players' Championship, dispatching Jordan Brown 6-0, Mark Selby 6-0, Karen Wilson 6-1, and then winning the final 10-3 against the Rocket. It was truly remarkable viewing. By the time you read this and indeed find the time for another podcast, it's possible Mark Williams peaked during the first session of round two, I would not hit those heights again. But whatever happens from here on in, it was a privilege to watch and will live long in the memory. On the flip side, will Luca Purcell ever progress past round one at the Crucible? On that point, we don't know, but uh, he's lost there five times now. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it's not great. He didn't look he didn't look good at all in that match. With I mean, I did fancy Senkham to win, and we'll come to my predictions later, which were mainly shambolic. But um, I did fancy Senkham to win that, uh, mainly because of Purcell's record at the Crucible. Um, on Mark Williams... Yeah, I mean, it was a fantastic performance. Was it the best ever? I can't see how it can be, because it was 7-1. That's the point, I guess. It would have to be 8-0, wouldn't it, for it to be the best ever performance? Because he played brilliantly, and yes, but he still lost a frame. So 
I remember seeing Ding Jun Wee um, win a session eight nil against Anthony McGill a few years ago. There, uh, can't remember the exact year now. That was as about as good as it gets. Also, John Parrott in that first session. We're going back a bit now, but ninety one against Jimmy White. He won all seven frames. It was a seven frame session, so seven nil, and that only took seventy three minutes. So, I mean, that would be extraordinary now to win seven frames in seventy three minutes. John Parrott against Jimmy White. That was another great session. Um, so, but anyway, but that doesn't detract from Mark's uh, performance, which was uh, sensational. And uh, as you say, I mean, the, the, the series of uh, performances by Higgins at the Players Championship, it was like that. Although, of course, he did it match after match after match. Um, but yes, it was uh, it was a fine display, and of course, he very nearly got to the final. Now, uh, here we go. Uh, sorry, uh, Russell Wellham. Now, this was written again a few days into the tournament. He said, what a world championship so far. I'm watching Ding and Wilson eight each as I write. Amazing stuff. As a fan of the podcast, this question popped into my head a few times when I've been watching your matches on TV. Whilst in commentary, are you ever reminded of something said on the podcast? And would you reference it on air if so? Uh, no, I wouldn't because that's... Um, there's no specific rules, but I mean, it would be self-promotion, I guess, wouldn't it? <laughs> you know, I mean, I think it would be frowned upon if I started to uh, direct people to the podcast. It's not a Eurosport thing; it's completely independent of them. So, out of respect for them, I would, uh, I would not, uh, I would not do that. Occasionally, other people do, and that's that's nice of them. But I, uh, I would have to keep that uh, well to myself, I guess. Uh, we move on. Uh, you, you, some people think this isn't planned, as I as I, as I desperately scramble through. The uh, emails to see what else we've got. Uh, ah, yes, James Cook, our dear friend. He said, uh, throughout the current snooker, f- I'm thoroughly enjoying the current snooker fest and your commentary, which is top notch as ever. Thank you. One thing occurred to me: Does Rob Walker introduce the referees? They're as integral to the matches of the players, and arguably, if not more famous than some of the players, e.g., Yamba Hass. Surely, some acknowledgement of their career accomplishments are in order. How many years on tour, how many finals officiated, etc. They could even have their own walk-on music. Uh, well, James, they are introduced. It's usually before uh, Rob is uh, introduces the players, and that's just for telly. They, they you know, they, they want the referees in position. They come out um, quite often to the boys are back in town by Thin Lizzy. Um, although, obviously, <laughs> when the female refs are introduced, maybe that's not appropriate. Um, they're given a big build-up. Rob always says something that makes me laugh, actually. He always says we can't do it without them, which doesn't sound the biggest compliment, but actually, he's right, we can't. Um, we need the referees there. and So they are introduced, they're given a good introduction, and indeed, the Tempodrome in Berlin, for the final, they walk on from where the players walk on. It's extraordinary. I think Marcel did the final this year. Uh, they're greeted like rock stars. So, uh, yes, they, they are very much um, acknowledged, and... Olivia, I know, got uh, a nice hand, of course, as I mentioned, his work uh, as a nurse. So, yeah, they, they are introduced, but you don't see it on live TV, I guess, is the point. Uh, we have one here from Malcolm Johnston. Watching the start of the World Championships, and a thought crossed my mind. What's happened to the shot to nothing? At one time, it was the commentator's favourite term, but with the dominant long ball potters becoming the kings of the bays, its use seems to be less and less as the modern player wants to leave the cue ball off the bulk cushion to leave yellow, green or brown. He's back themselves to pop the red from distance to get in to win a frame. Also, just to say, it's becoming more and more evident that you guys on Eurosport are leaving the old brigade on the BBC in the dust. Well, thank you, Malcolm. I'm sure a lot of people would would not agree with that, but all opinions welcome. And they're not such a, such old brigade now at the BBC because, of course, they brought in a few younger people, Joe Perry uh, and uh, Sean Murphy. Jack Lazowski was there as well. But anyway, uh, the shot to nothing... Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a term that is still used. Um, it's kind of it's a it's a bit of a redundant phrase, really, because quite often it's not a shot to nothing. I mean, the point is, you you, you know, you take on a long red with with safety in mind, but um, you can always, as you say, you can always leave a, a colour on, a bulk colour on. So maybe it, it, it's a phrase in need of an update. But I think if you comb through the coverage, you'll probably find it was used. <laughs> it was used quite a lot by various people. Uh, now then. Oh yes, we've got one here. Danny the Drummer, highest break 72. I was just watching the snooker, getting excited to go to the Crucible for the first time ever, and listened to Dennis Taylor say that a green off the spot was a great pot at an acute angle. I thought, ha, well I'm a well-informed snooker's in podcast listener, and I know it's actually an obtuse angle. Now this, I should say for new listeners, we had uh, this is uh, uh, we had a, a discussion about this on here, and someone pointed out, uh, someone qualified to point this out, said we've been getting it wrong all these years. Anyway, it continues, as I watched the replay, I thought about it a bit more. The white was just off straight behind the green in line with the pocket, so the white to green to pocket angle was indeed obtuse. But I think what's really being referred to is the angle from the view of the pocket. The middle pocket theoretically has a 180 degree view of the table. A pot from the blue spot to the middle would be viewed as a 90 degree angle if the base of the angle is the right-hand side of the table. That's 90 degrees from the view of the pocket, looking up the right edge of the table and at the blue. If anyone's still following this, then let me know. Anyway, uh, uh, whereas the angle from the middle pocket up to the right edge of the table and to the green spot is an acute angle. So maybe the commentators were right all along. (laughs) Supplementary question. Have you started saying obtuse in your commentary? And I wonder what you'll say next time you commentate. Well, uh, I I kind of, yeah, I've tried to steer away from this because it's clearly a burning controversy. and (laughs) And there's enough of those going on in the world as it is. So um, I, uh, I've sort of, yes, I've kind of uh, stayed away from that. But uh, it's, a, it's clearly an argument that's going to rage and rage all summer. I don't, don't think we've seen the end of it. Uh, now, uh, Liam from Crew, As I've noted in previous correspondence, I'm a huge Sean Murphy fan, both on and off the table. What's your view on his form of late, especially culminating in his latest defeat at Sheffield? He commentates on both mornings of his match day, and I wonder why he underperforms. I've never known this. Maybe he's beginning to think more about his future career than his current one, if you'll pardon the pun. Uh, was there a pun? I don't know. Anyway, uh, great show, keep it coming. Well, um, <coughs> his form is not good. He's had uh, sort of injuries um, which have affected it. The commentating thing, and people had a lot to say about that. Um, I mean, he only just lost to Maguire, didn't he? Ten eight. He wasn't exactly, he wasn't sort of slapped down. It was very close. I have to say, I was surprised he commentated on the second morning, so that was after the match had started, because he played two evening sessions, so he played quite a long session on the Saturday night, he was commentating at 10 to play again at 7. But what surprised me most about that was, he was, and this wasn't his uh, doing, he was put on a nine-frame start, so he was guaranteed to be there for at least three hours, whereas the, the finish on that Sunday morning, Shaoxing Tong, Jamie Clark, that was 7-2 overnight, and that could have turned round, but the fact is, it didn't. The Shazing Tong won 10-2. So, he could have only been in the box for an hour, which would have been better for him, surely. So, I mean, as I say, that's not his doing, but that's kind of surprising. I thought they might have put him on the short session, in theory. Uh, but that's up to Sean, you know. It's, he knows better than anyone how to, you know, conduct his affairs. His, his, his form, I think... Listen, it's not great, but it can turn around. He was in the final last year. You know, it's only a year since he nearly won the World Championship again. So, yeah, uh, it's up to him. I think Sean did a great job from what I heard and saw, 
very good talker, always has been. Um, loves snooker, um, loves it inside out, and you know he's always going to be positive about it. Has good insights about the players because he's at the top of the game himself. Knows their strengths, knows their weaknesses, and isn't afraid now and again to offer a word of criticism. Not doesn't just play the party line. So he's going to be doing that for years and years, I'm sure. And you know he's very, very good, um, and that's that's it. So, um, and I guess because of that, uh, you know, he wants to pursue that because he, you know, he's 40 this year, Sean. He's still, you know, a top player, but he may be looking at the future and thinking, okay, what am I going to do for the next 25 years? You know, and maybe this is something that that he wants to pursue. So, um, I think a lot of the comment about whether he should or shouldn't have commentated, you know, people can make their own choices actually, and he made his. And okay, you can say well he lost, so it didn't work, but. Who's to say if he hadn't commentated, he might have lost hev- more heavily? We don't know. We don't know. I can't believe we got this far and haven't mentioned the pigeon yet. Now, that cheered everyone up, that pigeon. It arrived uh, halfway through the tournament uh, between <laughs> Mark Selby and Yambing Tao. Um, Yambing Tao is the absolute master at deadpan. We saw that from that video they did uh, when Rob Walker went round his house. But he, <laughs> his sort of reaction to it is sort of a mixture of bemusement and just sort of, I don't know. Yeah. And then Selby came back in the arena because he'd been out. The pigeon nearly took his head off. Um, thankfully, it was uh, it was released back into the wild um, safely, and uh, it was just funny. Th- and the other thing was, thankfully, you know, we know pigeons. If you've ever been to Trafalgar Square, you'll know this. You know, they can leave behind evidence that they've been. Let's just say that. And thankfully, that didn't happen because that would have been <laughs> absolute nightmare for the table fitters. But um, yeah, it was uh, the year of the pigeon, and uh, we all enjoyed it. We all enjoyed it. Uh, slightly more serious note: the maximum, of course, from Neil Robertson. I mean, I, can't, I was looking to commentate on that and. He controlled it beautifully. Um, and uh, listen, he, it was another year he hasn't won it, but he goes away with very seriously happy memory of, of that moment, really. And it took a, well, a lifetime best performance from Jack Lazowski to beat him. So I think Neil, um, okay, he didn't win the world championship again, but I think he, he has to, you know, take happy memories from the season. And, and that break was, was sensational. And I suppose we should segue from that into the fact he was my tip. Um, I, I think I tipped a Robertson-Trump final from memory with the Ambing Town, Mark Allen also in the semis. Obviously, Trump did get to the final. Neil Robertson didn't. Yambing Town lost in the quarters. Mark Allen lost in the second round. I think I kind of learnt my lesson with him. Um, I mean, Mark Allen's a terrific player, but the something about the crucible just doesn't, it doesn't happen for him, does it? He can't keep saying every year... Oh, he'll get on a run because he doesn't. He hasn't been in the semis. Well, he's been in the semis once back in 2009. So it's 13 years. It'll be 14 years next year since he played on the one table. Uh, maybe it's just not going to happen for him there. And also Robertson. It's a very different sort of defeat this year for him. Obviously, he wasn't playing a, a, a sort of slower player. But again, I spoke to a friend of his actually. I won't say who it was, but he was there and he was saying he still hasn't quite got to grips with the crucible mentally maybe he was a little bit too intense I mean it's listen these are all fractions the fact is he lost to someone playing sensationally well sometimes you just have to hold your hands up and say look the other guy played great but you know he played so well during the season it'd be disappointing to lose in round two clearly um Yambing Tao I thought actually he was going to win that match with, with Williams um, I thought he was going to turn it round but Mark in some ways the most impressive win of the, of the tournament for him actually was the very end of that match, it looked like it was going to be very long, that final session. And in no time, he made a great break in the penultimate frame. The balls were awkward. He made a great break. And then 
won the won the last frame pretty comfortably. Um, so anyway, my predictions were no good. Is what we're saying. I think in the first round, I can't remember now, but I think I said Selby might lose to Jamie Jones. He didn't. I did tip Sengam to beat Brussel, which happened. Um, and there were two other upsets. I did. Oh, yeah, I tipped Maguire to beat Murphy, which also happened. Um, and then there was another one which didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> you see, if I've prepared properly for this, let me. Well, while we're just we're chatting amongst friends, why don't I just look at the draw because that might help me <laughs> remember what I actually uh, what I actually tipped. There are only there are only a few upsets, of course, in round one. This is the thing. So you know, all this. I think when we keep saying it's the most open ever. They're actually, when you look at it, they're not really, are they? Because the top players, you know, are always kind of there. Um, and yeah, and we saw, we saw most of them come through. I didn't tip Barry Hawkins to lose to Jackson Page. That was a shock, I thought. That was the, the sort of legitimate upset of that first round. Uh, just looking down. Oh yeah, I think, no, 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 I didn't think Lazowski would lose. I, I think, I thought he would beat Matthew Stevens. Uh, anyway, well, but people, oh no, that's right. Tip Chara New. I thought might beat John Higgins. Well, he didn't. <laughs> um, so anyway, the, uh, hopefully no one had money on that. I did actually, I did actually, uh, go for 1813, uh, for the, for the final. We, we get the little betting thing from Betfred in the media center and it was 11 to 1. And I said, oh yeah, I said, um, it's a bit skinny for me that. And Mark Pearson, who's a lovely chap from Betfred, uh, looks after us there. He actually said, well, you can have 16s if you want. And I didn't take it. Uh, so you know, anyway, bet responsibly, everyone. Um, Gary Park, congratulations on passing the 200 episode mark with no dilution in quality. Quite the contrary, the podcast gets better and better. That's very kind of you, Gary. Having watched the first four days cover from Sheffield and enjoyed every moment, one particular question springs to mind. A number of commentators have mentioned particulars about the tables and how they're ma- maintained by referring to such things as the superfine cloths reacting differently for a day or so once they are installed or the cushions being changed every few days. I wonder how much difference these developments in the game's equipment have made over time if added to such things as the improvement in the composition and reactivity of balls, better table lighting and the refinement of cue design, etc. We often don't notice the effect of a single baby step of progress at the time until we look back and see what a difference a whole series of such, such steps has made altogether. In short, if a top player from, let's say, the 1950s could be magically transported to 2022, would the whole experience be so very different to what he or she was used to in their time? Essentially, they're still playing on a 12 by 6 contained surface with six pockets and very similar rules. But would all of these relatively minor individual technical improvements, marginal games as they're described as in other sports, make the whole experience fundamentally different to playing the game two or three generations ago? Best wishes and thanks for enhancing the pleasure of watching Top Snooker. Thank you, Gary. Well, Gary, I suppose you could argue the other way. Actually, if you took a player now, if you took Ronnie O'Sullivan now to the 50s and played on those conditions, could he play the same way? My feeling is... Yeah, conditions have changed, but my feeling is a good snooker player can adapt. So I think you could, like Ronnie, you could take him back to the 1950s with the heavier balls and the thicker cloths, and he would find a way to adapt. Equally, someone like Joe Davis in this era would find a way to adapt. I think, you know, the playing conditions are beautiful, the, the, the thinner cloths, they make, and, and, and slightly lighter balls than, than they certainly they used to be, they, you know, they make for more, they make scoring more conducive because the balls are opened, um, more easily. They were showing on Eurosport footage of uh, the 84 final, Steve Davis, Jimmy White. The table absolutely covered in short marks. I mean, absolutely covered. It looked, you know, almost unplayable. It looked sort of thick and heavy. It, it was different. But again, the players of that time found a way to play under those conditions, I guess. And, um, 
that is the you know the sort of mark of a great player, I suppose. Uh, so it's an interesting question, but yeah, I think I think that that's the answer really. Players can top players can adapt. Now I'm going to just hurry through because with time is pressing. So Nick Glanville, um, I've been listening to the podcast for a long time now. I've never written in until now. There's so much good podcast and general online coverage of the sport, and your podcast plays an important part in that. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Nick. I've just returned from Sheffield where I took in the first session of the annual. Alan Donaldson match. Despite being a snooker fan for almost 20 years, this was my first visit to the Crucible. Living in London, the Masters is the main event I attended in person, but now I can't wait to return to Sheffield next year. While reading the programme for the World Championship, I noticed that the interview with Judd Trump included an idea I've thought about previously that I'd appreciate your view on. It's not a new idea, I'm pretty sure it's been discussed on the podcast before, <coughs> Excuse me, but like Trump, I think a Ryder Cup or Moscone to Cup style team event would work well in snooker. I'm also a big golf fan, and the excitement that the Ryder Cup generates is pretty unique compared to the other tournaments. I appreciate lots of this is down to the long history of the tournament, which you can't manufacture, but I still think a similar format would work in Stuka. Trump's suggestion is for a UK v rest of the world format, so I thought I'd consider what this would look like based on the current crop of players. Working on the basis of teams of 10, you could, reassign, you could assign seven players on each team by world ranking and then give three wildcard entry picks for team captains. As in golf, these captain roles could be filled by more experienced current players or former players. So this is what the current set of teams would look like in this structure. So the UK would be O'Sullivan, Selby, Trump, Karen Wilson, Higgins, Williams, Hawkins, and two wildcards. The rest of the world would be Robertson, Richard Sing Tong, Luca Brussel, Yan Bing Tao, Vafai, Zhou Yulong, Ding, Urjan Wei, and two wildcards. Less sure what the format could look like, but it could be a mixture of singles and doubles, although given the drawbacks of the doubles format you've set out on the podcast before, perhaps a mix of different length matches in each round may be better. Appreciate Snooker's going from strength to strength at the moment and may not need such a new tournament to drive interest, as Trump suggested in his interview. And in any case, it doesn't work to just copy formats from other sports. However, I think this warrants consideration. I'd appreciate your view on it. Well, Nick, uh, thank you for that. Um, oh, well, he also says, uh, sorry, there's a bit of praise for me at the end, which I'll, obviously I'll read out. He said, P.S., I should also mention your article on the Hurricane in the World Championship programme, which I very much enjoyed. Thank you, Nick. Um, <laughs> yes, I enjoyed writing that. Of course, it's a big anniversary, 50 years and 40 years on Alex Higgins winning the, uh, these two world titles. We have mentioned this before. I'm, I'm not personally that comfortable with UK versus rest of the world because it sort of shows how British-centric the game is. If, if Britain has one team and the entire rest of the world is crammed into another... But something like Europe v Asia or Asia Pacific to bring in Australia may work. I think the, the basic problem is this. Snoop is an individual game. It's not a team game. Um, so players play for themselves. And whether, whether you could manufacture the kind of the interest in them to actually, because don't think because, like those British players you all mentioned, don't think they all kind of want the same thing or think the same way or, or even all get on. You know, the, the idea that they would gel as a team is not, not necessarily the case. Um, maybe you would have more um, team morale with the Chinese players because they're a kind of settled group of players who all come over to the UK together. Um, but it's an interesting concept. It may, you know, listen, if, if there's a broadcaster and a sponsor and someone willing to put the prize money, then it can happen. But I suppose it's always about demand from the audience. And if there's an audience for it, then it could happen. Um on the doubles side that you mentioned, I don't, I don't think don't think that's not being looked at. I think we may we may hear news soon, possibly, about some sort of uh, some sort of innovation there. Um, and yeah, listen, I'm, I'm I'm for any snooker personally, and I think the concept it's been talked about for a number of years. This sort of Ryder Cup, Moscone Cup style event, 
I think they have to try the work very hard on getting the format right and make it look serious. The thing about the Ryder Cup is, and this history obviously speaks for itself, but it, you would think it was the biggest event in golf, the way it's hyped up. It's not, but you would think it is because the players do take it really, really seriously. Um, you know, there is a kind of, well, sort of nationalistic fervour, certainly, about it. Um, and that's great. It's great telly. It's great telly. But um, whether that could be replicated in snooker, I suppose we, we would only know by trying it out. I'll do two more emails and then there's a big finish coming. <laughs> uh, who have we got here? Uh, Vincent, yes. A listener from almost the beginning, but for another first-time emailer here. I'd like to address the deliberate... <laughs> I'll start that again. I'd like to address the deliberation about moving the World Championship away from the Crucible Theatre. I think we could potentially keep all stakeholders happy by revamping snooker's major competitions. My proposal would be to introduce a fourth major and for the time being split these tournaments among the UK and China. My proposal is as follows. And I'll say right away, Vince, and I, and I thank you for writing in. I completely disagree with what you're about to say, but I'm going to read it out anyway. World Championship. Move the World Championship to a new venue in China. The statistics don't lie. China has over 60 million people actively playing snooker and tens of millions more fans. It's only fitting for me the World Championship is moved here to a more sizable venue that can accommodate corporate hospitality. The Masters. As has been alluded to recently, move the Masters from Alexandra Paris to the Crucible Theatre. This means we don't divorce Snooker's relationship with the venue and the city of Sheffield. It would mean the Crucible still hosts one of the most prestigious Snooker events. The UK Championship. There's no doubt in my mind that Alexandra Palace should host a snooker event. And why not the UK Championship? This will also ensure there is, for the time being, a major event in the north and south of England. The China Open, the China Open should become the fourth recognised major. This tournament pre-COVID restrictions was one of the most prestigious tournaments on the snooker calendar. Prize and offer also reflected this. The, introdu the introduction of this fourth major would ensure the hotbed of snooker hosts two major events. I think snooker fans in the UK have been spoilt, but the time is right to now embrace China's enthusiasm for the sport. And what better way than hosting a few majors? Uh, I must say I've enjoyed the World Championship this year. A minor grumble is that the BBC coverage constantly switches uh, between BBC Channel's Red Button iPlayer. But all in all, the coverage has been very good and it's great to have Hazel back anchoring. On that point, we can agree. I spoke to Hazel Irvin in Sheffield and uh, she remains one of Britain's best broadcasters. And I don't mean best sports broadcasters, I mean best broadcasters full stop. But on the point that Vincent makes here, it's a bit like a two Ronnie sketch, this, uh, this Vincent. It's a bit like, reminds me of the, the mastermind sketch where you kind of, you're sort of moving, you know, it's like answering the, the question before sort of thing. Um, move the world championship to China? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> I don't think so. The BBC contract stipulates it's got to be in the UK. Um, the Masters to the Crucible, you say it would keep the relationship with the city of Sheffield. They don't want the Masters. They want the World Championship. If, if they don't have the World Championship, they probably wouldn't have any snooker at all. UK Championship to Ali Pali, well, what's wrong with the Barbican in York? What do they get then? You know, they lose out then. Um, these tournaments work in these venues. I mean, the thing about those three, the World, the Masters and the, the UK, they now have very settled homes and they each work in those venues. Now, with the UK Championship, of course, the format is changing. Um, which we may come on to later, but, you know, the Barbican is the settled home of it. China Open, I totally agree, was a big tournament before COVID. Um, I suppose that the, the issue I have with all this is, who says there's three majors now? I've never, like, I'm not on board with that. There's, we have the Tour Championship is a major tournament. Um, the China Open certainly was. I'd say there are others in there that, that, that qualify as major tournaments. It's interesting, the two finalists, uh, O'Sullivan and Trump, neither of them wore that badge, you know, that triple crown badge. Um, Maybe that as a thing is kind of slightly dwindling now. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But anyway, I, thanks for your thoughts. But 
I would personally keep those three tournaments where they are. If you want to promote the China Open in some way, you know, fine. Because it, it, to me, it was a major tournament. That's the whole point. I, I don't, I don't agree that there are only three. Um, and a lot of players would say that as well. Uh, but anyway, thank you for your thoughts. The UK Championship, we'll just cover that briefly. Um, that the format is going to be more like the World Championship now. So they're going to have 128 in qualifying and then the top 16 at the venue. Um, the UK Championship, it kind of, it does feel like it's fallen in status a little bit, particularly as the Masters has now become such such a top event. Obviously, the World Championship speaks for itself, and we've got other events coming coming through, like the Tour Championship, Champion of Champions, and others as well. Like the German Masters is always a big big tournament, uh, Players Championship, and so on. So th- I think the, the feeling was the UK was being talked down a little bit by some players, so they tried to reinvigorate it by guaranteeing the top players at the venue. All I say about that, I think it probably will be better. Um, it'd be less crowded at the venue. Too many tournaments are in that sports hall, which was no good. But <laughs> all these years they've been saying about the flat draw, we're not going to change the flat draw. We're sticking with it. It's the fairest system. It's the only system that works with the ranking list. The flat draw is here to stay. We're not changing the flat draw system. The flat draw system is not going to change. What happens? They change it. <laughs> they change it when it suits them, you know. The BBC clearly wanted it to change. They didn't like the sort of negative publicity around the event, so we'll change it. Fine, but don't spend years telling us you're not going to. Then, in that case, um, it's it's sort of the triggers broom of tournaments. If anyone who's seen Only Fools and Horses will know what that what I'm talking about. That it's the only thing that is constant about the UK Championship is the name of the event. The format has changed many times. Obviously, it used to be longer matches, a longer final. The various seeding structures have changed. Whereas the other two triple crown events they've not really the world championship basically has been the same format for 40 years the masters has basically been the same format forever they started with fewer players but it became established as top 16 the matches are slightly longer than they used to be but not much so those two tournaments are basically constant the uk championship has changed a lot and what i hope is that they now settle on this format and don't mess around with it anymore i think they missed a trick not to make the matches longer later on maybe from the quarterfinals onwards they could have gone up to best of 17 because I think, to me, that's the major issue people have with it, is that the matches are not long enough. But, listen, tickets sell very well at the Barbican. People like the tournament. And, yeah, let's hope that uh, maybe this reinvigorates it a little bit, because it is a great event. Sam Kelly uh, says, You mentioned on a recent podcast a correspondent had asked about using high-tech to assist the precise replacement of the balls following a miss. Got me thinking about the virtual table the BBC used to have during play. If I remember correctly, it started with the usual default shot from the stationary camera above and behind the black end of the table, which then faded into a CGI version with the balls in the exact same positions as on a real table. And the virtual camera could then move around to show the position from the player's eye line. I did hardly wonder how it could be so so precise, but however it worked, surely it would be ideal to show where the balls should be replaced to. BBC haven't used it for a few years for some reason, no doubt the technology still exists. Well, yeah, this was Hawkeye, wasn't it? Um, you're right, actually. That kind of has has gone. I, I can't remember when or why, but it's been a while. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. But um, anyway, Sam also says, Thanks for mentioning Discovery Plus includes Eurosport. I avail myself of the half price offer. And a happy side effect, which may be of interest to your listeners, is that the frequent annoying buffering, which has afflicted the Eurosport app it's for far too long, is absent from the Discovery Plus one. I actually met someone in a lift in Sheffield um, who, who thanked me for uh, mentioning this and said he's the best best 40 quid he's ever spent, which, um, you know, when you when you think of other things you spend 40 quid on was a great uh, compliment. Anyway, Sam also mentions Fergal O'Brien gratuitously. Of course, we, we could say good luck to Fergal 
in the in the Q school. Uh, one last uh, one last email. Uh, again, uh, see you, you, now it sounds like I've lost this email. It sounds like this is just you know someone desperately scrolling through. Ah, here we are. Yes, <laughs> it wasn't that. I mean, it was a dramatic pause. Uh, now. Uh, so this is quite long, but Adam Wareham has taken the time to send it in. This is the last one I'm going to read out, and then I'm going to get to the, the big finish. This is my third email to you, and you'd be kind enough to read the previous two, so fingers crossed we can keep the run going. I write to you during the bleak and barren sporting wilderness that is the two days between World Championship qualifying and the start of the tournament proper. My wife is floating around on a cloud, naively thinking that after seven consecutive days of the Tour Championship and World Qualifying, snooker's finally finished. Little does she know. My first question relates to Q School. As it currently stands, Stuart Carrington is 64th on the two-year rankings and thus keeps his tour card for next year. However, Ashley Hugill is 70th in the rankings and if he's successful against Neil Robertson, will rise above Carrington, knocking Carrington out of the top 64 and off the tour. Should that happen, Carrington will need to enter Q School to regain a two-year tour card. Problem, however, according to the WST website, is that Q School entry is closed at 12 noon on Wednesday. This seems very odd timing because it was on Judgment Day when... Not only is the World Championship not yet concluded, and Stuart Carrington's fate not yet decided, but at that point, eight of the final qualifying round ties had only started an hour previously. Do you know what happens to Paul Stewart should Ashley beat Neil Robertson? Has he, has he had to apply for Q School just in case if he drops out of the top 64? Will he miss out if he hasn't entered? I suspect this type of situation has occurred in the past, and there's a precedent set. I'm curious to know what it is. You seem like the kind of guy I might know, Dave. Do you? I think I'm right in saying that any player who is still playing on the tour, can it can enter Q-School after their fate is known. So as you say, I mean, it, it, came, it didn't come to pass in the end. But, um, yeah, that, that's essentially it. You can, uh, if you're, if the World Championship impacts, you know, whether you have to play in Q-School, you are accepted. The, the, the entries really are for people who are not on the tour or, who, who, you know, who, who would, whose fate is already known, I guess. Adam says, my second question concerns mid-session intervals I believe it's customary to have a mid-session interval of 15 minutes after the first four frames of a session, if a session lasts at least eight frames. Is this always the case, or just for televised matches? But after that, I think there are no more intervals until the end of the session. This can lead to a regular situation at the Masters, where we have best of 11 frame matches. And we have an interval after the first four frames, when players and officials are still relatively fresh, but then we can have a further seven frames without an interval. When everyone's more tired and the pressure increases as we approach the end of a tense and close match. Why do we not have another interval after the eighth frame to give all involved a bit of a breather? Well, I'm going to cut it short, a little bit short there, if you don't mind, Adam, because we're, we're, we're nearly at an end. But um, essentially, I guess, the, listen, the intervals, they're not for the players. This is the point. The intervals are for the venues. It, it's, it's a theatre tradition. You know, you have an interval halfway through a play because they can sell refreshments. It's to give people a break, yeah, but it's to sell refreshments. It's to make money. Um, now, they have them in qualifiers as well, which always kind of feels a bit strange, but it, I suppose it gives the referee a break and all the rest of it. Um, but essentially, um, I, I think if we had a second interval during a match, it'd just go on too long. I mean, you know, kind of the, the momentum and the interest would, would wane, I think. So I'm not I'm not in favour of two intervals during a session. Um, I think one one is plenty. Now, um, I just wanted to go out with, um, uh, on the World Championship, just going back to that, I saw a few highs and lows for me, um, and hopefully there'll be mainly highs, obviously, because, you know, it was a great celebration of snooker, I thoroughly enjoyed going back to Sheffield to commentate, and it was great to be to be part of it all again. Um, so, the, the sort of highs for me, I think Sheffield itself, you forget 
when you're not there, just how the city gets behind the tournament. Um, it's not just the crucible. It's Tudor Square outside, but it's the whole city. You get off the train, the signage, all around Sheffield, people support the event because the event does big business for them. It brings in, it's reckoned £3 million pounds in for restaurants, bars, hotels, shopping. You know, it's a long tournament. People spend money there. That's why the city council get behind it because it's it's big for them. It's a huge thing to have, and it's just such a friendly atmosphere around. And I should mention some of the podcast listeners I met while I was in Sheffield. I have to say I met most of them in a pub, which maybe says more about me than them. But anyway, um, Ryan Watterson, who's from the Watterson family, of course, who took Smooker to the Crucible initially. Um, David Burney from Canada, a long-time correspondent. It was nice to meet him. He very kindly gave me some Canadian maple syrup. Um, and uh, he's telling me about good things happening in Canada itself. Several others as well. Sorry, uh, kind of the names have, have become a blur because in the end, the whole event becomes a blur. But there were some very nice uh, comments, and thank you all for your uh, for coming up and saying hello and uh, for, for saying nice things. Very nice of you. Um, but again, that kind of just reflects the atmosphere in Sheffield. You know, everyone is there for the snooker and, you know, having a good time. And that's, it's slightly different to when you're reading online comments and you're seeing people maybe apparently not having a good time, even though they're supposed to be snooker fans. It's a bit of a disconnect to when you're actually there in the real world. I wanted as well to mention Rob Walker. Now, Rob, I've never met anyone quite like him. He, what you see is not an act, okay? He is like that all the time. I actually saw him on Tuesday morning before I left and he was still, his voice was a little hoarse because he'd been introducing people for 17 days. He's staying there for the World Seniors. He'd been involved in that. But what an extraordinary character and what an extraordinary job he did. You know, to make people... He's the first sort of face you see when you go into the Crucible to watch. He'll come out about 15 minutes before, say hello to everyone. He'll, if it's someone's birthday, mention it. He'll find out where you're from. His enthusiasm cannot be faulted. And he does a great job, as I said, welcoming people to the event. Um, and I say all this because I saw the odd negative comment about him. Um, I have to say, you know, I think you need to check yourselves if you, if you think that, that, you know, that Rob Walker is someone who should be criticised because you will not meet, you will not meet a less cynical person than Rob Walker. He is, he is about as, you know, as genuine as you can get. He's just someone who loves what he does and does a good job, bottom line, um, does a good job, pours himself into, he does so much, you know, obviously not just the MC, he, he was commentating there, he was doing interviews, very much a big part of the event, and uh, yeah, I think deserves a round of applause for his contribution to the tournament, and that extends as well to the staff of World Snooker Tour, you know, as I say, there are a lot of tired people by the end of it, a lot of those guys have been there for the qualifying, but also all the other events as well, it's constant sort of... Um, Crisscrossing of the motorways and, 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 you know, not a lot of time spent at home and working long hours because they are long hours at the World Championship to, to make it all happen. And, and of course they're at the sharp end when things go wrong. So I think they deserve uh, praise for that. In terms of the sort of the, the less um, good things I thought that came out of the tournament, one thing that concerns me is this Century Club that they're going to have next year. Now they have it at the Masters. It hasn't been that popular really, but you know, it might may, may build up. It's only, only had two years. The problem I have with it at the Crucible is it's not in the arena. The Masters, it's in the arena. So if you want to, you know, eat your cheese board and drink your white wine, you can do that while watching the snooker in the arena. But the Crucible, there's not room for hospitality in the arena. So it's going to be upstairs in the old Betfred lounge, because Betfred, sadly, are not going to be sponsoring the tournament again. Um, so it's going to be upstairs where they were. So 
the idea is you then come into the crucible and take your seats. But to me, this is just a recipe for empty seats because what you're going to get is a lot of the people who come to, to swill the white wine will find they prefer sitting in the sofas upstairs, watching it on TV, being served drink and food, rather than sitting in the crucible. And, you know, they're the front row. So we'll see. We'll, I may be wrong, but next year, we'll look out for empty seats. It actually happened... Um, in one of the semi-finals, uh, the, the people were still at the Crucible Corner where they do the hospitality now, and they didn't get back in time after the interval, and they traipsed in for frame six, but frame five, there were empty seats. It's not a good look when there's only a 1,000 seats to start with, to have empty seats. So we'll see how that goes, but I think one of the stipulations sh- should be when the play starts, you get in the Crucible arena. You don't sit upstairs <laughs> watching it on monitors because there's a lot of people who would love to be sat in those seats, and it is not a good look if they're empty. Uh we will see. Uh, in terms of other things, I think this talk about two crucibles, you know, I just found that so tiresome. We have the crucible. Once again, it's proven it's the best venue in snooker. Um, the intimacy creates the drama. Steve Davis was saying this, and I mean, he would know better than most. The fact that it's small and cramped actually is, is one of the reasons the tournament is so dramatic. Um, now, there's all sorts of wild talk about... I mean, I was listening the other day to... Proper people, you know, they're not 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 uh, not anyone in, within the game talking about this plan they've got to essentially knock down. There's a, the Roxy over the road; it's been there years. To buy the Roxy, knock it down, build another Crucible or whatever you want to call it, and then have a walkway between the two. So you've got in, a, in you've got I guess one big venue with two rooms. Well, there's so many things about this. Firstly, it's going to cost a fortune. You need planning permission. You need the city council to get behind it. Two, you're going to get... The second arena will be much bigger, from what I understand. So if you can have one table in one and one in another, a huge disparity. Plus, most people want to play in the actual crucible itself. Three, John Parrott made this point, and I agree with him. You earn the right to play on the one table. That should be getting to the semi-finals, not from round one. But four, and this is something I'm not sure anyone's thought about, one of the great things about the Crucible is if, you, if you're if you on a session, and obviously a lot of the sessions it's the end of the match and sometimes it's one-sided. So I mentioned Jamie Clark, Zhao Zingtong. That lasted probably not even an hour on that Sunday morning, the first Sunday of the championship. What happens is the wall goes up and you watch through the table. You can't do that in a one-table setup. If, if, if you're there and the session lasts three frames, that's it. That's all you see. That is not value for money. And that's cheating the public. That's why at the moment it works so well. The wall goes up. You paid your money, it's fine, you watch the other match. Um, so all this wild talk about let's you know build another crucible. We've got the crucible. And also what does this building do the rest of the year? The other fifty weeks of the year? How's it gonna make money? So we'll see. I don't know how far down the road that will, will go because we've been here before. We had the billiard drone years ago, two thousand and five. Uh, yeah. We'll see. I think I I think the fact that obviously the contract with Sheffield is up in twenty twenty seven there were sort of noises made about, okay, what can we do to to put in a you know good bit to, to get it again? But um, I get the feeling, and the way Barry Hearn was talking, I get the feeling that the Crucible is still pretty much sacred ground as far as he's concerned, and, and, and so it should be. Uh, the other things that slightly annoyed me, there was early on there was a lot of negativity from players about various things. Coming to the World Championship with a laundry list of complaints about the sport. This is our sport showcase. If you're going to be positive about snooker, this is the time to do it because there's so many people looking on. And, 
you know, coming in griping about formats and this, that, and the other. I didn't think it was a good look. It was all kind of overtaken very quickly when, when, when the play began. Um, but, you know, listen, it's fine to journalists ask questions, you answer them honestly, but some players you kind of wonder, what do they want? You know, you're earning a very good living from playing snooker, you know, and you get to play at the Crucible, you get to play in a championship that means a lot to millions of people around the world. What is really the problem? <laughs> you know? Finally, obviously as a member of the media, I'm, I'm qualified to talk about this. I do feel Will Snooker need to look again at their attitude towards the media. There were specific things that happened. Firstly, the press seats have gone. Now, it always used to be before COVID, for years and years, decades, that the press had seats right in front of the table, so opposite the audience. You could go in and watch um, and, and write pieces from there and have the perspective of having been in the arena. They've gone. They've gone for good. The arrangement now is you can ask to go and sit in the balcony and if there's seats available, they'll book you in. But that's that's no good, really, because A, you're miles away from the action and you're not nipped by the table. But B, you know, it used to be, well, you go in for an hour if you're free. You don't always know as a journalist when the time's going to be free. So it'd be ad hoc or go in the arena this morning, watch for an hour. You can't do that under the new arrangement. And it just seems the latest kind of way of keeping the media at arm's length. And there are other examples. I know someone prominent who was stopped from going into the arena at the end of the final to take pictures, even though he's a photographer and had every right to be in there. And, you know, I looked on that crucible floor. There were so many people in there. I don't know why he was stopped, but that was not a good thing. The security um, stopping sort of meet the media going into the arena, which I've never seen before. And one of them tried to stop me. Um, and it, and it was the opposite of don't you know who I am because he knew who I was. I know him, you know, he works on security, but he said, you need permission to come in the arena. I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to the commentary box. He said, I know you are, but you need permission. It seemed very petty and unnecessary and it's cr- just created, it's another thing that's created a slightly bad vibe. I know a journalist who says he's not going to go next year because he didn't feel the value of actually being there. He said, I could, I could actually cover this from home. I don't need to go. And that seems to be the attitude now. Not of the World Championship, he was packed on the last day in there, but most tournaments of the year, journalists tend not to go. You get turned up, there's no media there. Now, if World Snooker are happy with that, then what does that say about them? They should be absolutely busting a gut to reach out to the media. Michael McMullen did a piece for Eurosport on the press cuttings on the wall, just going through some of the stories, which was good. But he, he and I were saying afterwards, like when we started there, the press cuttings went all the way down one wall and all the way down the other. This was, you know, and the guys, obviously all the, all the journalists said done their best, but this was nothing like it used to be. Now, newspapers have changed over the years, so that's that's one thing. But, you know, the, the, it was a reflection maybe on, maybe on the way the media have been, as I say, slightly, I just find slightly held at arm's length. Um, one way to, to rectify that specific thing with the cuttings is to not just cut stuff out of the newspapers, but put the online stories up there. People like Phil Haig um, in the Metro and, and Hector Nunn's The Sportsman and, and, and various others. David Caulfield, all the stuff he does on his website. You can put them on the wall because that's all legitimate snooker coverage. That's all promoting the event. Um, but in general, I think it, it needs to be looked at. The press seats going is symptomatic, I think, of just a general attitude, which I think needs to be looked at. That's all I'd say. It's nothing against the World Snooker media staff. They're all good guys. They'll work really hard. It's not about them. It's about the sort of institutional relationship with the media. I understand they 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 focus on TV because TV, you know, that, that's where the money comes from and that's the shop window. 
but the rest of the media are important because you, you need people, you want enthusiastic people promoting the sport and finding ways to get the sport to a wider audience and you know, stopping legitimate people going in the arena is not a way to do that. I got in the comedy box, obviously, it wasn't a big row. It was just a bit of an unnecessary sort of thing to happen. And it, it left a bit of a sour taste in the mouth that, that this is happening because it's always been, all the years I've been going there, it's always been very friendly. Once you get in that crucible, you are made to feel welcome and part of the event. And that's what we won. That's what we won. And, uh, yeah. So anyway, these are, th- those are a few highs and lows, but, um, you know, none of that detracts at all from my enjoyment of the tournament, which was a wonderful uh, occasion and, again, a great uh, individual performance from Ronnie O'Sullivan. Now, uh, it's the end of the season um, and it is, well, it is not the end of the podcast. That's the first thing to say. We'll be back at some point um, because, listen, I work full-time in snooker and... I suppose the question is, why wouldn't I do it, <laughs> really? But I, when we'll be back, I can't say. I'm taking a break, a, quite a long break, um, because I, I, I just want to do other things at the moment, you know? Um, but I want to thank everyone who listens to the podcast, everyone who's corresponded, sent in their emails. Uh, without you, we wouldn't have anything to talk about. So thank you for the support. Thank you for the supportive messages that I've received and, as I say, the people i met as well. We'll be back at some point. Whether it'll be a different format, I can't say. I'm, to be honest, not really thought about it. But I'm laying down my uh, microphone, as it were. Not that I have one. <laughs> For now. So that's kind of it. We will be back in some form. But when we'll be back, I can't say. There's other podcasts you can listen to, of course, in the meantime. Uh, or you can take a break yourself. I mean, I say take a break. This World Seniors is on this week. Good luck to them for that. The Q School's coming up. And it won't be that long until the snooker's back. But uh, for now, uh, I, I, I do have a big finish because uh, it's been it's great. It's been very enjoyable doing the podcast. I mean, we started in uh, back in 2015, and we haven't done it every week since then. But really, since the lockdown, um, and I know a lot of people found the podcast in lockdown, we kind of have kept it going pretty much every week. We reached 200 episodes, which I wanted to do. Whether it'll come back weekly, maybe it'll be a monthly thing. I don't know. I haven't decided. So, yeah, um, I will take some time to think about that. But the bottom line is this is not the end, um, but it's the end for now, I guess. In the meantime, we are proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out the other podcast. You can email us at snookersinpodcast.mail.com. That's snookersinpodcast.mail.com. But when I'll get around to reading them, I can't say. But I'm going to leave you with the words of Vera Lynn. We'll meet again, and I'm going to play as much as this um, as I can without having to pay the estate of Vera Lynn. Here we go. Hang on. We'll meet again. Don't know where. Don't know where. But I know we'll meet again. Some sunny day. Here's the thing about Vera Lynn. She, she never had a song called Goodbye Bye, which would have been perfect. But there is a story, actually, before we go, a snooker story involving Vera Lynn. It involves Jimmy White and his dad, Tommy. They were, this was many years ago. They were at an airport. And they saw, in the distance, Vera Lynn. And Tommy, who was an incredible character. I mean, you think Jimmy's a character. Tommy was an extraordinary person. But anyway, he said to Jimmy, there's Vera Lynn. I knew her during the war. I should go over and say hello. And Jimmy was like, well... <laughs> 
Dad, listen, I mean, okay, fine, but, you know, she's not going to remember. She's like 40 years later. She's not going to remember you. You can just embarrass yourself if you go over there. You know, she'll have people coming up to her all the time saying, oh, do you remember me? She's not going to remember you. So don't, you know, don't put yourself in that position. Anyway, Tommy said, no, 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 I knew Vera. I'm going to go up to her and say hello. Jimmy's like, no, do not go over there. Anyway, just at that moment, Vera Lynn turned around and saw them, and she came running over, threw her arms around Tommy. Tommy, I've not seen you for years and years. <laughs> so that's that's the Vera Lynn snooker story. One more time, one more time. Here we go. Podcast Network.